All right, so after last week's sermon, originally we planned on taking a break from the series on the book of Acts. We're going to do another topical series on something else. But I've spoken to a lot of you, and the book of Acts has actually been really, really helpful for you. And none of you have felt the need to take a break from it. So we're just going to continue and take along uh, through the book of Acts. And today we're going to move forward in Acts chapter 8, and we're going to continue to track along with the story of how God grows his kingdom, okay, but how God's kingdom, the early church, expanded from Jerusalem to the regions around it and eventually to the ends of the earth, okay? So here's God's word, taken from Acts chapter 8, verse 1 to 25, about how God grew his kingdom. This is the word of God. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city, and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip... As he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot on this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me, the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Thus says the Lord. Okay. There's a lot of stuff in this passage, but the main, main thrust that I want to approach this passage through is that we see here how God, through his spirit, grows his kingdom, grew the early church starting from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Okay, that's the main point of the passage. Now, the question that I want to answer from this passage today is that how does God do that? Okay, what's his MO for growth? What methods does he use? What outcomes can we expect as God grows his kingdom? And it's really important for us to know the answer to this question 
Because if we don't, we're not going to know what to expect. We're not going to know how to prepare for whatever kingdom growth God may have in store in the future. Okay? So it's good prep for us to know what God's planning on doing and how he does things. Okay, so how does God grow his kingdom? And what should we as Christians, servants of this kingdom, expect to encounter if he does so? Four things. First, we must expect a lot of irony. Second, we've got to be prepared for a lot of diversity. Third, we have to endure much confusion. And fourth, we have to exercise tons of self-restraint. All right, don't worry about getting all these now because we're going to go through them again as the sermon moves on. Let's start with our first point. As God grows his kingdom, we Christians must expect a lot of irony. Now, what do I mean? Take a look at verse 1 again. The church in Jerusalem just got persecuted, right? And they're all scattered all over the place. But let me read to you verse 1 one more time. And this time, take note of which city the persecution happened in and which cities these Christians ended up getting scattered to. Okay? Pay attention to the name of the cities. All right, verse 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they, the Christians in Jerusalem, were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Okay? So in a map, Jerusalem would be here, and Judea and Samaria would be here. Okay, so that's kind of how the early church started to grow and expand. First from Jerusalem, then to Judea and Samaria. Now, here's why it's ironic. Do you remember what Jesus said would happen in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? Six chapters before any of this persecution happened. He said to his disciples, and let me put it on the screen here, uh, just so you know I'm not making it up. Before any of this persecution happened in Acts chapter 7, Jesus told his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that you will be my witnesses, where? In Jerusalem, to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Do you see the irony of what's happening here? The persecution that was meant to kill Jesus' mission just ended up pushing it forward. It ended up accomplishing the mission statement Jesus previously already laid out six chapters ago. God turned one step back into two steps forward. That's how he grows his kingdom. Let's call this MO redemptive irony. Okay? And, and by the way, this isn't just something he did here in Acts chapter 8. This is how he operates all over. Think about the cross itself. Was that not the ultimate display of redemptive irony? See, they thought they got him. They thought they killed Jesus. The disciples thought the cross was a hundred steps back in God's movement of kingdom forward. But in fact, God used it to fulfill the mission altogether. Okay, so how does knowing this MO then inform us Christians about how to be prepared as God continues to grow his kingdom? Okay, well... We must expect a lot more irony to come. It's just going to happen. That's how he works. That's how he's going to work. Okay, don't feel so quickly defeated when things aren't the way you want it to be. Okay, when things look dire. And by the way, this applies to our individual lives as well. 
you know. Many of us may be in a bit of a slump right now for whatever reason. Mourn, of course. Be sad, yes. No one's minimizing any of those things, and they shouldn't. But also, you got to remember that you have a God who works, ironically. Do you see the glory that came out of the broken body of Christ? What of yours is broken today? Here's your glimmer of hope, that your God is a God of redemptive ironies. So expect more of it in your life, in life of the church as a whole, as he continues to grow it all the way to the ends of the earth. Which leads us to our second point. As God continues to grow his church to the ends of the earth, one, expect a lot more irony to come. Two, be prepared for a lot of diversity. Okay, this is, second point, really the, the, the whole point of the passage, really, the diversity of God's kingdom. Okay, that it went from Jerusalem, stage one, to Judea and Samaria, stage two, and eventually to the ends of the earth, stage three, right? That's Jesus' three-stage mission. And in our passage today, we're at the second stage of the mission, right? Judea and Samaria, okay? And we see here a few weird things happening in stage two of the mission, specifically in verses four to eight and 14 to 16. You, you probably read it earlier and you went, what in the world was that about? That's kind of weird, right? Demons being cast out, people getting healed, people speaking in tongues, all, the, all that kind of crazy stuff. Now, why did these crazy things happen in Acts chapter 8 in Samaria? We have to understand it in the context of kingdom expansion. Okay? We, we got to view it under that context or else we're going to misread it and misapply it everywhere. Let me explain. Can you all think of another time in the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit came upon a large group like this and performed this like, public spectacle and cause people to speak in tongues and do stuff like that. When else did that happen in the book of Acts? Anybody remember? Pentecost. That's right. Which happened in Acts chapter 2. What city did this happen in? Jerusalem. Think stage one of Jesus' mission growth. And now it happened again. For a second time in our passage today in Acts chapter 8, in what city? Samaria. Think stage 2 of Jesus' kingdom growth mission. And then later, it's going to happen for one last time in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 10, in a place called Caesarea, which was filled by non-Jews, Roman citizens, people from other nations. So think stage 3 of Jesus' mission, the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, okay? And then it doesn't really happen again in the New Testament. I mean, in small, very small scales here and there in 1 Corinthians, yes, but never again in such a big scale like this that we see happening in these three cities. Why not? Because these events aren't meant to be repeatable events. These were one-time public inauguration events, like when a king takes the throne, there's a coronation, there's a public spectacle that happens and says, he is king now. That's what's happening here. These are coronation, inauguration events, and it happened only in these three cities to the pure Jews in Jerusalem, 
to the half-Jews in Samaria and to the non-Jews in Caesarea, according to what Jesus said would happen in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And let me just, this is a side note, but I have to say it. I know there's tons of different opinions about this out there, and if you want to chat more about it, would love to do that. But the point here about these crazy things that's happening in the book of Acts, the point isn't to make us expect more of them to come in the future as God grows his kingdom. That's not the point. The point here isn't to tell us that there's going to be a second, third, or fourth Pentecost. Why not? Because you don't re-coronate an eternal king that already had his inauguration day. It's not meant to happen over and over and over again. I know there's thoughts out there. If you want to talk, I'd love to talk to you about it. The point here is to communicate that Jesus' kingdom will expand and include all cultures according to his mission statement in Acts chapter 1. That's the point. Okay. So, what does this mean then for us Christians? How does knowing this help us prepare for God's future kingdom growth? That it's going to be a diverse kingdom filled with many people from different cultures. Okay. Well, there it is. We need to go ahead right now to expect a lot of cultural diversity in the church. Meaning, as Christianity expands, we got to be careful to not fall into ethnocentrism. What do I mean? Well, let me share a story, and I've asked permission to share the story, um, and he's given it to me, so it should be fine. About a week ago, there's a few church members in the church office, and we had this amazing time getting an impromptu cultural lesson on the Batak culture from three of our church members who happen to be Batak. And if you didn't already know, because I'm an expert now after one conversation, <laughs> if you didn't know, there's this complex inner relational dynamic that exists today within various Batak clans, okay? And this dynamic was created by events that happened hundreds of years ago. So, for example, if an ancestor from your clan at some point in history, like 300 years ago, offended, offended an ancestor from another clan, those hard feelings exist today. Like 300 years later, it, I never knew that. That was very fascinating to me. One, uh, somebody at the office even said that they were having this great time with a new friend that they met at a dinner party. But then at one point of the night, somehow in the conversation, they each learned that they're both Batak. And then they continued to talk, and eventually they started to learn that the other person came from, quote-unquote, the wrong clan. Like, their ancestors had conflict 100 years ago or something, and after figuring that out, the other guy immediately went, oh, and just walked away. Like, it's intense. I was like, wow, that's really, really intense. Now, okay, it's easy at this point. This is what I mean by ethnocentrism. It's easy for us at this point to be judgmental. It's easy for us at this point to look at, the, at that culture and say, so unforgiving, so unchristian. But hold on, hold on. This culture actually embodies another Christian concept, perhaps more than any other culture in the world. What Christian concept? Well, the concept of original sin. Isn't that a Christian virtue? Isn't that a Christian thing? Right? Because my clan representative at some point in time, way back when, committed a sin that sin carries on to me, namely Adam. And the opposite is also true. If my clan representative did something great, did something righteous for us, namely it's Jesus, 
that righteousness then also carries on to me. Those are Christian values. Those are gospel values, and it's thick within the Bata culture. See, a Westerner who comes from an individualistic culture would hear the concept of original sin and probably go, that's not fair. I'm my own person. Why would the sins of somebody from hundreds of years ago affect me? But a Batak person would hear that and go, yeah, that is life. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. That's how things work. <laughs> it just, what do you mean? Because that Christian virtue is thick there. You see, okay, so does that mean that Batak culture is more Christian than Western culture? No, not necessarily. Because Christ is also the king of individuals, right? The concept of individual responsibility is also a Christian virtue. You see what I'm trying to say here? No one culture has the moral high ground to say we are the culture that embodies Christian virtues most. The point here is that Jesus is redeeming for himself a diverse kingdom filled with people from many cultures. And each culture, having their own strengths and weaknesses, will emphasize different parts of the Christian faith, the Christian worldview. So go ahead and get ready, Christian, to build a robust ability right now that will allow you to see which parts of the Christian worldview is better embodied by the culture that you're in and which parts of the Christian worldview is better embodied by another culture that you're not a part of. So when a Christian from another culture offends that which you consider to be a Christian sensibility, you won't immediately go, oh, I guess, I guess I'm just more mature than them. Not necessarily. Hold on and take a second to think about how you also, in their eyes, might have offended unknowingly Christian sensibilities that their cultures embodies more. You see what I'm saying? And in that state of humility, grow up together in the likeness of Christ. It's going to be filled with diverse people from many, many cultures. Okay? So, let's summarize. Because God has a particular MO for kingdom growth, we Christians, one, should expect a lot of irony. Two, be prepared for diversity. Grow the humility for diversity right now. Third, we have to get ready to endure a lot of confusion, okay? Which leads us to our third point. Like any growing movement, as Christianity grew, it started to encounter many counterfeit versions of it. Versions of it that look similar, but actually isn't Christianity at all. And that's what we see here in verse 9, as a person named Simon the Magician enters the scene. Okay, look at what happened. There's a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Now, the term magic here, okay, it was used a lot back then, and it could refer to either one of two things. One, it could refer to actual science that most likely came from Persia. Okay, a lot of scientific discoveries migrated from Persia everywhere back then, so Simon might have just mixed charcoal with sulfur together, lit it on fire, it exploded, and then he goes, look, magic. It's really just gunpowder. That's one potential meaning for the word magic here. Or a second way that this word is used back then is to actually refer to actual spiritual activity that did not belong to God's kingdom. 
Whichever one or whatever combination of the two Simon the magician might have done back then, we don't know. But the point is, whatever he did looked really, really, really similar to the work of the Holy Spirit that worked through Philip, Peter, and John. But it wasn't. It wasn't. It looks similar. And Simon himself even looked like a Christian. There are hints of it. It said that he believed, although it didn't specify what he believed in. Whereas the other Christians that came to Christ was specified, they all believed in the Lord Jesus. He was baptized. And at the end, he said a prayer. But it's suspicious there too because when, when Peter said, you got to repent, you got to pray for this, he didn't actually pray. He punted the prayer back to Peter and said, no, you, you, you pray for me. So there's questionable there about whether or not this is repentance or not. I think as a whole, Simon here is not displayed as a protagonist in the story. He's, he's an antagonist here in the story. And it's confusing because he looked like a Christian. What he did look like a Christian, but Peter's rebuke at the end, I think, clarified that he probably wasn't, and this wasn't a good thing that was going on here. And the point here today is that, friends, the same goes for the church today. As Christianity grows, we're going to encounter a lot of institutions, a lot of groups and people who might do a lot of things that look very Christian, that look very miraculous, that look very spiritual, but it is not the work of the Holy Spirit. It's a counterfeit version, like Simon the Magician here. Hence the title of the third point, as God grows his kingdom, be prepared, Christian, to get really, really, really confused. Because it's confusing, and there's tons of them. Okay, so then how do we distinct between that which belongs to God's kingdom and that which belongs to the counterfeit version? Well, we don't get all the clues here. Okay, the other passages give us other pieces of the puzzle. But what we're given in this passage is one piece of the puzzle, namely what a leader from the counterfeit kingdom looks like. Okay, that's all we get here. Simon the magician here is the poster boy for what a leader from this counterfeit kingdom looks like. And we see here at least two things about Simon the magician's character. First, he promotes himself more than he promotes Jesus. Second, he performs more than he worships. Okay, let's go to the first one. A leader from the counterfeit kingdom may say a lot of Christian jargon, may look very, very spiritual, may even know tons of Bible verses. But when he's up here, he promotes himself more than he does Jesus. Look at Simon here in verse 9. He practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Self-promotion. Look at verse 10. When he did all the miracles, the crowd was described to be paying attention to him. That's literally what it says. They were paying attention to him. The spotlight was on him. Now contrast that with the crowd's reaction to Philip. Philip wasn't pointing people to himself. What does verse 12 say? He was pointing them to the name of Jesus. A sign that someone is a leader from the counterfeit kingdom is that, one, their vibe is much more self-promoting than Jesus-exalting. Ben Witherington, 
a New Testament scholar and a Greek expert in many ways, said something interesting about verse 13. In verse 13, it says that Simon heard the gospel and continued with Philip. See, again, that's why it's so confusing. Um, he continued, it looked like he continued Philip because Philip continued to follow Jesus. But, but what Ben Witherington pointed out here is that the word used to describe Simon's following of Philip, which is continued with, he continued with Philip. If you think about all the other times you've read the Bible of somebody following Jesus, it, it doesn't say they continued with Jesus. It said they followed Jesus. That's the, that's the phrase used. This phrase, continued with, is actually often used in the literature back then to describe someone who was, and I quote, following a rock star. That's not me. That's Ben Witherington. Simon didn't follow Philip because he fell in love with the Jesus Philip was preaching about. He continued with Philip because he wanted to grow his rock star image. And at some point, we, the church, have to ask ourselves, when are we going to learn? How much damage has to happen before we learn that the kingdom of God suffers when pastors become rock stars? Too much damage has happened. I'm listening to this podcast right now about a particular celebrity pastor who ended up really hurting God's kingdom and the church a lot. And one of the members of his church that left told the interviewer, he said, the last words that I said to this pastor was this. I came here asking you to show me Jesus, but he got lost in your shadow. Now, I'm not saying every pastor that has a bit of a flair about them comes from the counterfeit kingdom. No. Okay, maybe it's just personality. That happens. Maybe their ego flared up a little bit, and hopefully they'll come back to their senses soon. But there are some leaders who claim to be Christian leaders who lead in such a way that makes your sanctified gut tug on you a little bit, whispering, there's something off here. I can't really pinpoint what it is, but there's something off. Not saying your gut's always right, but sometimes it might be. Pray that the Holy Spirit gives you discernment because you need it and save you from a lot of pain that has happened. Okay? First characteristic of a leader that comes from a counterfeit kingdom is that they promote themselves more than they promote Jesus. The second characteristic is that when they're on the pulpit, they're more interested in performing rather than worshiping. Where do we see that? Look at verses 18 to 19. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so the fact that he wanted to buy the Holy Spirit, that's horrifying enough. <laughs> but pay attention to this. He didn't really even want to buy the Holy Spirit. He just wanted to buy the power to control the Holy Spirit so that he can do the things that Peter and John were doing. Read it again. It didn't say he offered them money saying, give me the Holy Spirit. It says he offered them money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands upon may receive the Holy Spirit. He didn't want the Holy Spirit. He wanted the Holy Spirit's magic. Why? 
to grow his rock star image. The second sign that a leader belongs to the counterfeit kingdom is that they're not actually longing for the Holy Spirit. They just want his power to impress people. They don't come to this pulpit on Sunday morning ready to worship, but rather ready to give a performance. That's the second sign we see in our passage. So, Christian, expect a lot of confusion. It's hard to tell. You're going to be too judgmental sometimes, not brave enough to speak up at other times. It's confusing, and it's hard. Expect a lot of confusion. As God's kingdom continue to grow, there will be tons of counterfeits, which leads us to our last point. Because of that, Christian, we must be ready to exercise tons of self-restraint. Okay. Let's look at Peter's respond, response here in verses 20 21 at the end of our passage to Simon the magician. So after Simon offered to pay for the Holy Spirit's magic, <laughs> Peter got really angry, right? Peter rebuked him and said, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Peter was livid. He was pretty upset. He was clearly angry. But in the middle of his anger, look at his words in verse 22. It's like he took a deep breath, <laughs> regulated his emotions, calmed himself down and said, Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. You can just feel the self-restraint, couldn't you? In verse 20, he was like, oh, man, the things I want to do. But then in verse 21, he offered a gospel invitation. <sighs> Come, Simon. Jesus died for you too. Friends, when you encounter people capitalizing on the Holy Spirit out there, I get how it can induce anger within you. To be honest, I've had to delete a few things on my manuscript as well for my sermon today to better embody this part of the passage. It's frustrating. But let me say this. Heaping curses upon someone as you walk away from them rarely helps. It rarely helps. All it does, it creates an ecosystem that discourages conversation. We gotta find a way, like Peter here, to both hold our ground and warn them of their folly, but in such a way that still invites them into the gospel of grace. We gotta figure that out. As God grows his kingdom, Christian, we must expect to know when to speak up and when to exercise self-restraint. And I know it's hard, it's really hard. I get it. But we've got to do it. And we'll have some hope of doing it if we remember the gospel of grace ourselves. See, Jesus opened his mouth a lot. Yes, he held his ground all the time. Sure. But he also knew when to keep it shut. All the way unto a cross, even. Isaiah chapter 53 says. Why? So that you and I may be forgiven of our folly so that you and I may be invited into the kingdom of grace. Peter had to know, right? Somewhere deep inside, he had to know. He was able to take that long breath of patience and self-regulate mid-sentence, mind you, because he knew 
that he was no better than Simon the Magician. He too, not long ago, rejected Jesus three times. And only by the grace of Christ was he invited back in. We gotta remember that or else you'll have no hope of self-restraint. The gospel of grace, and this really is the, 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 the foci point, right? This is the, the vocal point of all we just talked about. It's the gospel of grace. It's the cross of Christ. If you forget that, you're not going to be able to see the redemptive irony in your sufferings, point one. That's how God works. Look at the cross. If you forget that, you're going to easily fall into ethnocentrism, point two. If you forget that, you're not going to have the basis to discern which leader is promoting the right and wrong thing, point three. And you forget the cross of Christ. You're not going to have the patience to long suffer with God's enemies because you forgot that he loved you too while you were once his enemies. This is what it comes down to, friends. Embodying the gospel of grace more and more and more in our lives. And if you do that, Christian, you'll be well prepared for the kingdom growth that God's going to continue to do. And that's my prayer and my hope for CCC as a church, that we would do exactly that, a radical embodiment of grace, so that whatever God ordains to happen to his kingdom growth here in Indonesia, we'll be servants ready in position to do our part well. Let's pray. Father, remind us that we were once your enemies and that there is nothing within ourselves that impressed you or made you consider to make us your child. That only happened because of your mercy and your gospel invitation in which our folly may be forgiven of. Let us never forget that and grow pride and look at others from a moral high ground that we have no right to be on. And help the gospel of grace encourage us and push us forward as we see sufferings in our lives, one step backs as two step forwards because you are God of redemptive irony. Help us be open-minded and humble about our um, cultural preferences and help us stand our ground knowing that this gospel of grace is too pure to be left defiled without anybody defending it. But at the same time, let us do it with much self-restraint and grace that we can offer to the world, yes, even the worst of these, for we are them ourselves, a chance to enter into your kingdom, washed by your blood, and may they experience by our demeanor and our words the refreshing gospel of grace that washes, yes, even the dirtiest of sinners, even me. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.